Welcome back, everybody. It's my pleasure to warmly welcome you to Untold Tales. And today we have a very special guest, our first guest, Hailey Lamoth. Hailey, maybe you'd like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. So I am a behavioral science student. I am hoping to branch into psychology and I am a very high advocate for borderline personality disorder and alcoholism within youth and hoping to change people's perception and stigma towards borderline personality disorder. Right now you're living in Canada, right? Yes, close to Toronto. Nice. Uh, she was just telling me how it's cold. Well, it's a nice day today here in Amsterdam. It's also a nice day, finally, after many days of rain. Um, yes. I'm having a nice cup of tea. Are you having something as well? Coffee? Yes, a protein shake for breakfast. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really rely on my caffeine every day, every morning. It's, it's quite bad. <laughs> I, re I read an article that was telling me that it was like bad for your cholesterol to not eat before coffee. And I was like, I just started eating breakfast every day since then. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I tried to stop like, controlling my coffee intake and I got really cranky in the morning. So it was bad enough. I was like, I'm not going to torture myself anymore. I really yeah. need that coffee. But yeah, um, let's jump right into it. Um, we're... Were you born? So I was born in Guelph, Ontario. Um, I didn't really live there for long. I've been to 14 schools my whole entire life, all different cities. So I've, oh my gosh, the longest I've ever lived in a city is here and where I am now. And it's been four years and I am 26. So a lot of moving. <laughs> How was that when you were a child? Um, I would say... I didn't really notice it affecting me until I became an adult. Um, I think I was so used to moving when I was young. Um, mind you, my dad was in, in the army. There was no reason for that. We just kept changing jobs and kept moving. So as a kid, I didn't realize how much it affected me as an adult. I realized it really affected how I attached towards people and, you know, like my abandonment styles. And I just never really was able to get close to somebody in fear I was leaving. And those years moving out and meeting new people, how do you remember your childhood? Do you have fond memories? Honestly, it's, it fluctuates. So sometimes I'll remember good memories and sometimes I'll remember bad things that have happened. Um, a lot of times I will have a good memory and in the end it'll turn into me remembering a bad moment. Um, It's more so with family than with friends. I've had a lot of good times with friends in my life, but yeah, a lot of rough times with family. How was your house growing up? Living with your parents? Do you have any siblings? So no, I'm actually an only child and my parents are still together. They've been together my whole life, only separating for two years and then they got back together. So that's very rare. But um, yeah, so my parents... Um, Living with them growing up was very different environment. It was very back and forth, very anxiously attached, um, avoidantly attached. I never, I never knew what to expect. It was either, you know, happy one second and then freaking out the next. Um, a lot of judgment growing up, a lot of fighting, a lot of name calling. 
So that was something that I definitely mirrored in my own adulthood relationships and had to start getting a hold of. But it was very back and forth, very chaotic is the word, I guess. Would they fight a lot? Oh, yes. Um, it was a lot of emotional abuse. So it took me until I was 23 to even realize I was being abused. So once I went and started looking into therapy, um, I remember saying to her, I've never been hit, so I've never been abused. And I remember her explaining emotional abuse. And I was shocked. I was like, wow, like my whole life, I didn't realize. I thought something was wrong with me. I didn't understand. So, yeah, it was a lot of turmoil. It was constant chaos. And you have like any specific memory of those years? Sometimes when you're a kid, you have like one image. I know it happens to me that keeps recurring and coming back. I don't know, something you want to share, moving? Yes. I would say the first memory, one that's really prominent to me is, so being in therapy, I tried to understand when was the first time I got yelled at or noticed my parents fighting. And <clears throat> once I started analyzing that, I realized the first time I really remember them fighting was when I was eight. And I remember I asked for an ice cream and it was late. And my dad was saying, you know, she can have one. And my mom was disagreeing. <clears throat> we went in the house and she told me if they were to ever split up, it would be my fault. And that's something I carried with me for a long time because they did split up for two years. And during that time, I took it to heart, assuming it was my fault. So that was very difficult. That's a very prominent memory I can remember. Um, and just my parents drinking a lot. Drinking was very heavy in the house. Um, so my dad was always in the garage. My mom was always in the house. And by around six, my parents were gone. And these new people who drank were back. So that was usually every night. So they started drinking when you were six? Um, my mom actually didn't start drinking until she was 30. So she had me when she was 23. So she didn't start drinking until I was older. But my dad has drank my whole life. So my dad is um, indigenous and alcoholism is huge on that side. So he's unfortunately still stuck in the loop. I am the first one to break that cycle of drinking on that side, unfortunately. But yeah, and just huge alcoholism. And these are things I didn't even notice until adulthood. How old were you when they split up? Um, when my parents split up, I was in high school. So I was in grade nine to 11, and then they got back together. Right. And with which one were you living those years? My mom. Actually, what had happened was I my parents were together in um, Woodstock, and then my dad had moved to New Brunswick, and my mom had moved to London. And so I went to London to live with my mom for a little bit, and then we didn't get along, so she shipped me back to New Brunswick. And then I got shipped back to London um, within the same year. So I did school in grade eight. I did school in Woodstock, London, and um, New Brunswick. <laughs> so it was a lot that year. Yeah, I can imagine. How was London? London was good. It was a very short time being there. Again, I met a lot of great people, but had to move fairly shortly. So build a lot of good friendships, but ones I couldn't really expand on beyond the internet for years. Right. And you mentioned that you had a rocky relationship with your mom in those years. 
Were there like any particular triggers or was there something in, in particular that just didn't work in that relationship? Yes, I would say we constantly butted heads. There was like a very high awareness on my end, but a very lack of awareness on her end. And it just, you know, I, we were at completely different stages. I was ready to work on myself and she wasn't. With my mom, there's a lot of petty comments. So um, there's a lot of things that she would say that would trigger me, like commenting on my looks was a huge trigger for me. Um which really affected my self-confidence growing up. And um, that was something we really didn't get along with. She was very judgmental towards my life. So regardless of what I did, she always had to comment on it or say something about it. Um, and it was never a safe environment. So that was one thing that was really difficult for me is that, you know, she would try to be my friend sometimes and then my mom other times, but she never gave me a safe environment. So it was so confusing for my mind to understand, like, what were we? Because I don't know if I placed her as a mom or a friend and it was just very confusing yeah and also as an only child i know that by experience sometimes you don't have anyone else to share this in the mm -hmm. nuclear family exactly. you there's no buffer it's just you so yeah i can imagine that those were um i was gonna say The word that comes to my mind is uh, confusing years. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a lot for sure. It's I think um, one thing too with my father, particularly being an only child, I think people assume that you're close with your parents and um, my parents being together. My dad was always in the garage, you know, doing his own life and drinking. And I think we never bonded. So like we never even got to connect on that level. So it just always felt extremely awkward with my father. And I'm not sure really if anybody can relate to that, but, you know, it just felt really uncomfortable around him all the time because, you know, we didn't really relate to anything. It was always drinking. There was no real bond there. Was he particularly abusive when he was drinking? It was more my mom. My mom was extremely abusive emotionally towards him, which kind of changed his persona a lot. My dad has been with my mom since he was very young in his 20s and um, they're in their 50s now. So I'm not sure if, you know, they've who who made who which way. I definitely think that they both contribute that way. But my dad is more so avoidant. Like my mom is yelling, whereas my dad's I don't want to deal with it. I'm walking away. I'm done with you. So it's very difficult in different senses. You posted about the family scapegoat and what it is and how to deal with it. Maybe you could explain yes. um, a bit about the family scapegoat and how was your experience with it? Yes. So basically the family scapegoat is somebody whose wrongdoings and mistakes and are all basically put on that person. So that person is basically the wrong one in the family. They always make mistakes. Everything that happens bad in the family is on that person. Um, and growing up, I was extremely scapegoated. I didn't, uh, I would go to family gatherings and I would always feel very sad. Um, everybody would tease me. I was the one person that, you know, they always picked on and, uh, you, I was blamed for everything. So when it came to, you know, my parents fighting, I was blamed for that when it came to, You know, the family gatherings not going well. I was blamed for that. And 
So that put a huge dampening on my mindset because, you know, being a scapegoat and, you know, being blamed for everything, like that's really hard to go through in life because you start to internalize that and feel like you are to blame for everything. And, you know, maybe I am the reason they broke up and maybe I am the reason my family doesn't get along. But yeah, once I started to understand the term, I started to realize that it's unfortunate, but a lot of family members do have a scapegoat. Usually it's the aunt or uncle that doesn't come around and you don't realize that until you're older, right? Yeah. And did your family get together, like your extended family very often? Um, Probably not. I'd say about four times a year. But when we would, it was very uncomfortable. A lot of ignorant comments. Um, everybody would comment on my life. Who I was dating particularly was always a very high comment in the family gatherings. Um, but just very, very rough. I dreaded them all the time. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was in probably adulthood that I realized, you know, I don't have to do these. I don't have to put myself in positions that are so uncomfortable like that. And growing up to be a teenager, how how do you remember those years in particular, that transition? With mm -hmm. I would your say house, confusing. Yeah. Confusing. Yes, being a teenager, I wasn't really home often. Honestly, I had um, been kicked out of my house consistently growing up. Um, I remember even doing driving school um, while at a friend's house sleeping on their couch. So, like, my life growing up as a teen was very back and forth, on and off. Um, I had gotten in trouble with the law when I was 14 years old for assaults and was on probation. And... Uh, started drinking around 12. So by my teen years, I was pretty heavy into drinking. And I did stay in trouble with the law until I was about 18. So that was consistent for for years. And um, being a teenager was very scary, I would say. I had a lot of emotions and I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't understand why I felt the way I did or why, you know, I was always so sad um, one thing that was particularly hard, and I don't mean to trigger anybody here, but with um, particularly suicidal thoughts and growing up with those, that was probably the hardest thing to deal with because, you know, for so long I was told that it was normal because my mom was struggling probably too and didn't realize she was telling me it was normal, but it wasn't. Um, so growing up with these, I just couldn't understand. It was it was very difficult to be You know, I remember the first time my suicidal thoughts started was when probably I started drinking around age 12 and uh, started leaning to other things to cope. And that's when it just escalated from 12 to 20. I just drank consistently. And it was hard because being a teen while being in high school, I didn't focus on school at all. I was just focusing on how am I going to stay alive and make it till I get out of my parents' house. And that was my focus. Do you remember the first drink you picked? I honestly don't. I, I have tried many times to think about it. I'm not sure if it's because I was drinking for so many years. Um, but I do remember specifically being 12 and having friends over and we were drinking my parents' alcohol that was downstairs. And um, them coming home and being really sick and uh, at a young age, at 12. And, you know, I... 
I was living in Woodstock, so it was a smaller city. I'm not sure if that made a difference too. You know, there was not much to do. Um, we kind of got into a lot of bad things in that area. But yeah, once I started, once I found alcohol, it was like the coping mechanism I felt I needed. And I it was like, it was something that took the pain away briefly. And do you remember the feeling? The feeling yes. of the first um, drink? I would say the feeling, I would say the feeling of the first drink probably continued until I got sober. Um, that feeling of the first drink was probably the reason why I continued because I loved that feeling. It was, you know, music sounded better. Life was better. I didn't have to deal with problems. I could, I had more confidence to say things. Well, I thought it was confidence. It wasn't really confidence. It was ignorance because <laughs> I would say ignorant comments and stuff, but I felt it was, you know, a higher sense of myself. Like I had, I was this, you know, goddess aura. I, I couldn't, I was unstoppable. And that's what made me, you know, keep going to it. And it also provided me a way to kind of bond with my parents. Um, and them being big drinkers, I felt I didn't really have a reason to bond with them. That's not to per se the reason I started drinking, but uh, I definitely feel that that's as an adult and as I started going on in my teen years, that was the only time we kind of bonded was through drinking. Would you drink together often? More separate and then be drunk together. So I would be separate at myself drinking and then come to see them. Um, in my teen years, I, I didn't get along with them at all, like to the point where I, I barely spoke to my parents. Um, things started changing a bit more once I was 18 and 19. And I got my own place for a little bit once I was 19 near the end there. And would go back to my parents, um, have a couple beers, and then go back to my apartment, be drunk. And it, that was just my lifestyle before getting sober. And, you know, my parents and me, we would bond through giving a couple beers here and there. And there was the relationship was just totally faltering out into toxicity that I couldn't even manage. And you mentioned as well trouble with the law. Were you drunk in those instances? I'm so sorry. Can you repeat that? Um, you mentioned that you had trouble with the law as well. Yes. Were you so, drunk in those instances? Oh, for sure. Most of them, um, most of my charges, 100%, every charge I was drinking. Um, I had assault charges um, on partners. Um, I had assault charges on friends. Um, I had one assault charge. My first charge ever that got me in trouble with the law was actually from my mother. Um, I had stolen her card, her bank card. I was on drugs um, and she kicked me out. And I didn't have any money, so I went home and pretended I was getting clothes and took her bank card and took $200 to support myself for the month. And my mom called the cops, and that was my first charge. And that kind of just set me down the rabbit hole because once you're in the system, it's, it's particularly difficult to get out. So then it was just downhill from there. Um, I also have an assault charge against my mom when I was a teenager in high school going into grade 10. Um, I had got in a fight with my mom one night. I was going to have a party at the apartment. She came home. I thought she was on vacation. I was kicked out, so I wasn't even supposed to be there. Um, and that started a huge battle. Um, then things escalated. There was a fight. I got charged with assault against her because she bruised. However, 
it was it was a mutual mutual fight but i definitely did wrong as well um and that was the start of me and hers disagreements that was when i couldn't speak to her for three months by law because of the assault charge which was very difficult um i was living with an aunt at the time going to high school um i couldn't speak to my mom so even if she phoned me i had to hang up um it was very chaotic i was on house arrest when i was in high school um and you know when you think about it it's all my a lot of my charges and stuff like that kept going on because of breaching a curfew so i'd have a curfew of 6 p.m while i was in high school and I found that difficult to follow. And then it went to 8 p.m. I found that difficult to follow. Um, so that's kind of what kept me in that loop is, you know, breaching that curfew because I, I didn't want to be home at six. Um, I hated being home. So, you know, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't manage that and built around it. And it was difficult. And being in trouble with the law, um, that just escalated from 14 to 18. I was continuously in trouble. And I had gone on house arrest. I had gone to Hamilton to like a juvenile uh, detention center um, just for a couple of days. So I went there for probably about four days and never went back. And around that time, I would have been 18. And that's when I started, stopped getting in trouble with the law. And then around 19, um, I got my DUI and lost my license from hitting a tree and then I then I got sober so it took it took years of like law um fighting getting in trouble it was a very chaos from age 12 to 19 it was chaos and and everything in between <laughs> uh was the experience of that detention center the one that sort of pushed you to not be in trouble with the law anymore? Was it particularly, I don't know, how, how was it being there? That was very different. It was, I felt that it was more so like a home because my environment was so toxic that, you know, I went there, we were eating dinner at the table and we were eating lunch at the table. And so it was very different. I felt that I really enjoyed it. Um, having stability in my life and that offered stability. So that made me realize that, you know, I really enjoy that. Um, but that's when I stopped getting into trouble because I think that for so long I felt unstoppable because I would get in trouble, but I would get off, you know, and I would get, you know, house arrest for three months, but I didn't have a bracelet and I could still go to school. So, you know, I just felt like I was unstoppable. And um, until until I got sent there, that's when I was like, oh, I can get in trouble and I can go away for a long time for this. And once you go to juvenile detention center, you can go back, but if they're going to accept you, that's the case. So you may not go there next time. And I definitely think that taught me a valuable lesson. There was a girl I went to high school with that was in there. Um, she was in there for four months um, at that time. So that really changed my perspective too. I couldn't imagine being locked up for that long in there and yeah so then once I was 18 that really changed my perspective stopped getting in trouble for a year and then um my drinking had just escalated from that point to 19 and that's when I had lost my license got charged and that's when I um still was drinking I was still 
in a rough place. And I'd say probably about half a year after that is when I got sober. Would you get in a lot of physical fights when you were drinking? Because you mentioned um, assault charges with friends. Against yes. Friends. A lot of aggression. Um, I had gotten in a lot of fights with my friends too. I I think that with the way that my energy was, um, I had attracted a lot of like-minded individuals in my life. So a lot of high energy. Um, you know, we would drink together, all of us. And I think that for going through a lot of trauma, It was probably a rough group of people to be drinking together because um, it was ca it would cause turmoil and everybody would fight and everybody would get angry. And um, yeah, it was a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger in my life and I really didn't realize I was such an angry person until adulthood. But growing up, I can see it in these, you know, like fighting and, you know, getting angry. I had um, I had one time also had a partner slap me. And I had hit him back for that. And I had got charged for that because um, they were pulling up when I was hitting him. So unfortunately, I was the one who got in trouble for that. Um, and I think understanding that I was just in such an angry place and I was gravitating towards, you know, very toxic people that were just like my parents, too. And it was just causing me to be so empty and so angry. And it's like I was screaming for help and through anger and through my actions and through getting in trouble and nobody was listening to me is what I felt. Were there any other drugs involved? Yes. Growing up as a kid, um, in my teen years, I would say I would try, I tried anything under the sun other than, um, like particularly hard drugs. So I would do, I'm not sure if you have certain drugs where you're from, but it's um, like MDMA, ecstasy, um, basically uppers like that. Um, it's something I would always do. MDMA is something that I got really attached to in high school. Um, that was something that was really difficult to stop doing. It gave me like a feeling of, um, like a, a feeling of not caring in the world. And I was, you know, It was like drinking, but better. The only part was that, you know, with MDMA, there is a time where you're coming down from the drug. And, you know, now as an adult, knowing that I have borderline personality disorder, um, I can see how that could be linked and why coming off the drugs was so much more difficult for me and why it really would affect my life. And, you know, I'd be in my room for days hibernating. I didn't want to see the world. And, you know, I, I would do anything to not feel like myself. That was pretty much the goal. So as long as anybody had something to take me away from feeling like me, I would do it. And what would you say was your lowest point at your in your addiction? My lowest point would be about six months to seven months after I had um, lost my license. So I, what had happened was I was driving that night with a friend. I'd gotten an argument with her. And, um, I had got, I was driving down a road. I had hit somebody's like the little, the end of their truck. And so they stopped to talk to me and I guess I got out of the car and talked to them. So they had noticed, you know, I was intoxicated and called the police. Thank God. Um, but I had hit the tree and the police came, I had got charged. And the crazy part is I remember waking up that day, the next day and thinking, where's my car? Like, I gotta go get a coffee. 
And I just had no recollection of what really happened and what transpired. And it's crazy when you think about that, because even that experience wasn't enough for me to change my life. And I think had it, had I had hurt somebody or even, you know, affected somebody else, it would have been different. So I think I continued drinking for a bit after that. I still don't think I learned my lesson for a little bit in terms of drinking and driving. I did, but not with alcoholism. Um, and so about seven months after that, it was rough. I was drinking by myself. That's when I started noticing something's not right. Cause you know, when I was young, I would drink by myself to go meet friends, but this time was different. I would wake up, I would drink all day. I would, and then I started to work again. So what I would do is I would wake up, I'd go to work, I'd drink, pass out, and then I'd wake up again to my alarm, but I would pass out every single night just from drinking. I had absolutely no routine. And I noticed it was a problem because I was drinking by myself all the time, hiding bottles. Um, I was inviting people into my house that I didn't even really know. And, you know, doing things that I would have never done, like making choices I would have never made. And I just was completely different. I was, I was drunk on the couch every night, you know, just wanting to, wanting to escape. And I think I started noticing a problem, um, a little bit before I had got sober, but initially when I really wanted to change my life, I had gone into work drunk. I had worked at a factory for like pet food at the time. And, uh, it was a great job. I really loved it, but I went into work. I had called in sick and I had a friend come over that day from work during lunch. And they said, come to work, come to work. And I said, no, I can't like, I'm, I'm drinking. I can't go to work today. And, um, I did anyways. I do believe things happen for a reason. I I don't know why I went, but I went to work and I had gotten fired. My boss had told me that he thinks that I've been drinking for a while and he didn't want me to work there anymore and so on and so forth that he would call me a cab to go home. And I said, it's okay. You can call my mom. So they called my mom and she picked me up. She asked me if, you know, if I have an issue with drinking. And that was the first time my parents ever noticed a problem with me drinking at 19 and I was drinking since I was 12 and that was the first time. So I had said, no, no, I don't got a problem with drinking. Everything's fine. And the next day I went home, I had a friend come over that night and bring me a bottle of vodka to drink. And I had grabbed it. I was shaking. I was feeling very sick that day. Um, and I dumped it down the drain. And the next day I called my mom and I said, I want to go to detox. And I went at 20. So what really changed my life, I think, was just being so lonely and drinking by myself, hiding bottles, you know, the anxiety of the decisions I was making the night before. Like I had I had no no morals. I didn't care about myself. How was sobriety in those first days, weeks and months? Very different. Um a very different life. I think that for somebody that's drank from 12 to 19, you're so used to going to that. And, you know, I grew up seeing my parents drink. So to me, alcohol was in place with fun and not dealing with problems. So, you know, I was like, well, what do I do when I don't have that? And it was very different. I, for a while, it was hard for after I got so um, sober, I did not know 
that, you know, anything really about myself for two more years. So for two years, I just, it was confusion. I didn't really understand it. I, it was very difficult. I had to, I had to cry a lot. I had to deal with a lot of heavy emotions. Um, and it was, it was difficult because I didn't relate to my parents anymore. I was now in this house and didn't relate to these people. And I felt very disrespected all the time. I would be asked to get my mom wine after being sober. Like she'd ask me to get her a glass of wine. And um, that, that mind you, her getting me getting her a glass of wine is behavior that had occurred even dating back to me being as young as 10. So like, I've always had to get my, like had to get my mom wine. And this is a behavior that just kind of continued and was very toxic for me. Yeah, um, I can definitely relate to stop drinking. I recently, I started drinking when I was 13 as well. Mm -hmm. And I recently realized that the relationship that I had with alcohol is absolutely unsustainable and that it just mm -hmm. can't go on, um, that I had to change something. And I've been sober now for, I think, three months. I still don't know really what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> what I'm gonna head with this but it's really overwhelming I can really relate to that you were saying about just everything being there suddenly mm -hmm. being there so many things that you didn't even know that you were trying to not face just mm -hmm. wake up and it's like this thing that I suddenly have to think about and you can't have a drink to not really have to mm -hmm. face it so yeah I can Really understand. Well, I'm incredibly, I'm incredibly proud of you. That is a huge step. And yeah, the first, the first while is really difficult. I'd say the first couple of years, really, because it's a new life. You get used to it. But the first, the first three months are difficult. It's very difficult. You know, it's a very big change. Um, you know, you get bored. What do I do with my time? Um, you know, what do I do with my friends? And then you start to think about things that you never even thought, oh, what, if, what if I get married? You know, what if I have my kids graduation, you know, and things that, you know, like, why do we assume we need to drink to do those? And it's, it's crazy, but I'm really proud of you. That's a huge step to acknowledge <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's not working. It's so funny what you said about marriage, because I never wanted to get married. I've never thought about that. But since I stopped drinking, I was thinking, what am I going to do on my wedding? <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. That's so funny. I've never wanted really to get married either myself and I'm 26 now. Um, but yeah, that's, that is hilarious. Yeah. You think of things you don't even, you don't even want to get married and you're like, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. What about the champagne? I was like the only thing I'm thinking about. <laughs> Seriously. Like I had imagined like this free bar, you know, like an open bar. It's like, what's going to happen? Is it going to have to be like juice or something? Kind of. Yeah. Like, is anybody going to have fun? And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you think of vacations too, like, you know, all inclusive vacation. And you're like, well, what do I do? And it's, it's very different. We're in such a world that's so about alcohol and it's so pushed in society and that, you know, having a bad day, have a drink, having a good day, have a drink, you know, having a weird day, have a drink. Everything is have a drink. It's, yeah. and it's never have a, have a therapy session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should start going around just telling people, you know, we should go to therapy. So you give everybody like a free hour of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would be better. Well, 
And in those first days or months, did you relapse? No, but um, so when I got sober, shortly after I had got a dog and um, I actually don't have her now. My parents had sold her when they were in New Brunswick. I didn't know about it. So unfortunately, I didn't get to say goodbye, but she had got me through some really tough times. And, you know, I would come home after getting sober with beer or, you know, with wine or something that was at the store I could grab on the way. And I would get home and I'd see my dog and I'd remember that, you know, I can't be drunk and take care of her. So she really helped me a lot. But um, I think that one thing that I also started realizing once I got sober is you hear a lot like relapse is as part of recovery. Right. And I don't think that that's fully true. Um, And the reason being is because I think that when we tell people that relapse is a part of recovery, they assume that they are going to relapse. So when I got sober, I was like, oh, this is exciting because I get to relapse eventually. You know, I don't I don't have to stop drinking really. (laughs) But then I was conditioned to think, you know, then I was starting to wait for it. I was like, okay, I'm three years in. Why haven't I relapsed? Now I'm four years in, you know, and it just kept going on. So I think relapse can be a part of recovery, but it isn't always a part of recovery. And again, we all have, you know, different circumstances and different coping abilities, right? Like, whereas I can go through one situation and think that's not enough to drink or as another person can. And so, yeah, I think Mia, my dog at the time had really helped me. I would I think that I would highly suggest, you know, even finding a friend group when you get sober, having a dog or having like somebody that you can share life with without having to drink somebody that can be a sense of happiness without, you know, that added alcoholism to it. And why did you finally seek for professional help? Honestly, I think that having my grandfather on my mother's side um, is a recovering alcoholic. Um, And knowing that, I think that because I knew of it, I knew what alcoholism was. Mind you, if I never knew that he was a recovering alcoholic, I'm not sure if I would have got sober because I wouldn't have known what it was. So I started to spot the signs of alcoholism pretty, pretty late. So on the end of me getting sober, um, but my, for sure, my, uh, the alcoholism was very, how do I put this? Oh, I don't know how to word this. It was probably like noticing that my parents had a problem before me a little bit, noticing that their drinking was heavy, kind of like made me want to stop. Um, and the crazy part is, you know, I didn't think they were too big of drinkers. I just thought, you know, maybe I was the problem and I get sober and I realize, wow, like alcoholism is huge in this family. And, um, I think wanting to get sober was just being done with my life. I was so sick of waking up and regretting what I did, making such bad decisions and, you know, like just cringing all the time. And that's what I hated, like the, the anxiety, you know, from the decisions you make, because you're not yourself, you're, 
people say like, oh, you say the truth when you're drunk. I don't believe that. You when you're drunk, you could be a whole different version yeah, of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I definitely don't think that. I think I'm even a better liar when I was a better liar when yes. I was drunk. I no, for sure. I wouldn't like even scare myself. Like the next day, I would be like, how did I manage to come up with that lie? Like not even sober or dreaming could I have come up with that. So yeah. And it was then when you got with um, that diagnosis for borderline, when you seek for help. Um, I was already sober at that point. So I was sober two years when I seeked. So like I sought help for specifically for my mental health. Um, I was in the mental health system for years, actually. And I had got diagnosed with anxiety and depression when I was really young, around 12, 14. Mind you, I never knew this. So my parents knew I had a diagnosis of anxiety and depression and never told me. I never found out. I never got told by any professionals. I never knew anything. And, and once I was, once I was sober, that's when I started dealing with my problems. Right. So once I was sober, I was like, Oh my gosh, life is worse sober than it is, than it was drinking. <laughs> like it's That's how it felt. But at the end of the day, it was, it was better because I had consistency, you know, I could wake up and even though I was, I was sad, I was dealing with my problems rather than avoiding them. And that was something that I, I needed to do eventually. So, you know, to get on it in my twenties, I had to start doing it. Um, but when I got, um, when I got diagnosed, I had originally cried for days and days. And I thought something was going on. Like I've cried a lot in my life, mind you, I'm, I'm a cancer. And on top of that, (laughs) having borderline, so very emotional. Um, and I, I cried for days and days And I couldn't figure out what was going on with my mind. I just wanted to die. I was so sad. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to feel like me anymore. And so I reached out and I I said to them, I said, something's like, something's wrong. Something's not right. And so I had a three hour appointment and I met all nine criteria for borderline. But I originally went thinking that I was bipolar That's because I didn't know much about it. You know, Um, there's a lot of stigma behind bipolar and, I assumed that it meant being happy and sad and that's not the extent of it at all. It, you know, extends from mania mania and depression. And um, it's just, when I went and found that out, I was like, what is that? What's borderline? Like I was so shocked. And, you know, to, to read this, my life finally made sense. You know, the alcoholism, everything, like it just, it all made sense to me. I was like, wow, this is, this is who, who I've been in my whole life and not really understood. And I think the difficult part about that is in Canada, very rarely will you get diagnosed with a personality disorder before 18. And I think that's very odd because especially with BPD, if you're not managing it at 16, 17, 18, you're still going to have it in adulthood. It's inevitable. Yeah. But I guess with the way that I, a child's brain's forming, like I'm learning in psychology now, um, you know, their brains are just still developing. So they can't determine how their personality is yet at that stage. Um, but yeah, the anxiety and depression was always there. And my parents just never dealt with it. Um, once I found out I had borderline, I think I wanted to educate them a lot. I would send emails a lot. They wouldn't really look into it. You know, it was for me, I just finally found out who I was and what was, you know, explaining my feelings for so long. And it seemed like they didn't really care. And it was like, you know, that was my big realization. And within, I'd say about 
half a year um, in 2018, we stopped talking. And I have not spoken really to my parents um, consistently since then. So it's been getting sober has really changed my life. Like I'm telling you, I was so unaware and like getting sober, just, you know, I was emotionally abused. I didn't even realize that I have BPD. Like it just, it completely, it made my life more difficult for a while, but it made it more manageable. And that's what I wanted for so long is to just manage my life. Um, maybe you could explain to the listeners what borderline is. Yes. So here, I just want to bring it up to make sure I can explain the characteristics. Right. <laughs> of course. It's hard to explain. I, I, everybody asks me what's borderline. And I'm like, honestly, I, I have to, I have to do the definition because <laughs> it's too, it's too difficult for me to explain. It's chaos, <laughs> pure chaos. Okay. So there are, um, there are nine criteria when it comes to borderline. You can get diagnosed with BPD if you only meet, um, I believe it is five of those. Um, so that's pretty interesting and in that people can, like, you don't have to have suicidal thoughts and, you know, the certain aspects to it, but you can still struggle with it. And um, another thing that's interesting about that is there's also something called quiet BPD. So with BPD, people assume that they're very, like, you know, externally angry and freak out that way. Whereas, you know, people with quiet BPD, they internalize everything. So rather than acting out that way, they'll internalize all that. And so that's really interesting. It could stop somebody from getting diagnosed. But um, so basically, it's just a mental disorder that's characterized by mood, behavior, and functioning. And um, so there's, there's a lot of mental illnesses. But the one thing about borderline personality disorder that really stood out to me, it, it's the one that has suicidal thoughts and behaviors as a symptom and a criteria. And that's very interesting to me because, um, you know, even with ADHD, suicidal thoughts can be come part of it, but it's not in the diagnosis. And that's something that really rang, rang true to me. And it's, you know, you have a distorted self image, you have feelings of boredom, emptiness, anxiety, you have loss of interest in routine activities and, With BPD, it's almost always comorbid with um, anxiety or depression. So that's something that's extremely difficult. Um, and with borderline personality disorder, it's technically a lifelong disorder, but you can manage it. So you will have it forever, but you you will learn how to manage it. So you technically won't have it forever. So it's, it's very difficult, um, but it's primarily treated with psychotherapy. So... That's something that I really like about it is that it's not very medication-based. I'm not very big on medication. Um, my parents have been on antidepressants themselves um, most of my life. And I saw them try to get off and it made them very sick. So I started to realize, like, I don't really want to be on something like that to have to wean off because I'll rely on it. Um, so it's not for me. I was I'm more of, like, psychotherapy. But whatever works for anybody, like, if it works for you... you you hold on to that. Um, but basically, so you go, it's like a three hour test you'll go through and um, you'll speak to somebody about your symptoms, what's going on in your life and um, you know, your background history and we'll get a good depth of that. And then 
you know, you'll get this diagnosis and you'll probably be told to do a DDT course. And the one thing about borderline uh, personality disorder is that it really impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others. But, you know, this DBT course, it can really change that in terms of how you think and changing your mindset. But it's very difficult for people to do that. You know what I mean? After years of talking down on yourself and having a bad sense of self-image to go to a DBT class for six months or even a year, you know, how to, how can you change your brain in that time? And so I think that's what really interests me about BPD is there's so much uh, information still ongoing about it and so much evidence that's still happening. Um, like there's, oh my gosh, there's so much that I'm learning in school about it. There's, it's, and more people, more and more people are starting to have borderline personality disorder. Um, and a lot of individuals who do have bipolar two because of the same sort of symptoms, like the, uh, it's hypomania, mania rather than mania. So it's less mania. They do tend to mirror borderline. So a lot of people will get bipolar diagnosis and then they're given medication where they got by, sorry, borderline and they don't, you know, they can't really function with medication for bipolar. So it's, it's very difficult. Like even myself, I never heard about this in my life until I was 23 years old. And once I found out about it, I was like, wow, I, I didn't even know this was a thing. I start researching and it's everywhere on the internet. So, I mean, if you were going to if you want to look for it, it's there, which is interesting, but I never saw it. I never heard about it. Nothing. Yeah, and it's also so important in this process to find someone like a professional that is that suits you, that clicks with you, mm-hmm. and that is good at what they do. Because I know that when I was when I started looking for help, and uh, my first experience with a psychiatrist it was horrible. Um, he was the one who first told me very nonchalantly oh yeah you have a borderline personality disorder and then just like left it there and then I the moment I was like no okay I need to change um, what is going on here I remember he told me to call him if anything happened if I was having any thoughts if I wanted to kill myself and I called him at some point and he asked me if I was on my period (laughs) that was his first reaction (laughs) He, oh my gosh yeah, yeah it was it was quite bad and then thankfully of course I was like no I'm not going back to this um um dude I don't know even what doctor man <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah and then finding good help is so important and finding something that suits you not everyone mm-hmm. needs the same right mm-hmm. um and yeah I mean I am, we are running out of time. (laughs) I have so much more things that I wanted to ask you. Maybe, I don't know if you would like to come back for another episode because there is so much more I want to talk with you about BPD and and family members um, dealing with Of course. I would love to have you over again as well. uh, Many people, uh, many of our listeners, they sent me questions that they wanted me to ask you about how to deal with uh, certain family members, when to seek for help, tips. They were hoping that you would give them tips. So maybe, I don't know, maybe we could publish them in the um, in the show social media as a sort of um, mm-hmm. extra, and then we can continue this conversation soon. 
because yeah it was yeah for amazing sure to having you here thank you so much they can always well. uh i do have a blog so if anybody also wants to check it out on bpd can't break me there's a lot through there and if they have any questions to ask me personally um I don't mind helping. I'm, I'm not a counselor, but if you need help and resources, I will try to find them near you. Of course, and I will attach both your Instagram page and your blog when we publish this. I will share your awesome. accounts. But yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for asking me to come. It was such a pleasure to come here and it was so worth waking up. I was so <laughs> excited to do this and you're such a lovely person. I'm so glad that I was able to take the time to do this and you know, you reached out to me. It means a lot that you thought to ask me and reach out to me specifically. So I would love to come back on. Anytime you have questions for me, just let me know and I'll be here. Thank you so much. I've been following your account for several months now. And I don't know, it just made sense to talk with you. I was like, yeah, it, it, it just has to be her. I don't know. Oh, well, that's amazing. It meant so much to me. It was so nice to read that message. So anytime you need me on here to answer questions, anytime you have questions, let me know and I'm here. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much, Hayley, and I hope to have you back soon. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's it for today's episode and I hope that you have a lovely day, that you take care of yourself and that you do as good as you possibly can. So I hope to see you soon. Goodbye. <laughs>